Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Today, I have another ghost story for you. This one takes place in Berlin. In Berlin, I prayed. I don't do that as a rule. I'm an atheist. But even for an atheist, there are some places where prayer is the only possible way to acknowledge the surroundings. I said the Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, when I was at Auschwitz to cover the ceremonies marking the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the camp. When I was on assignment in Jerusalem a few years ago, I went to the Western Wall. The need to utter a prayer to a God who I am certain does not exist overwhelmed me. Irrational, I know. I put my head against the wall and said the Shema, the short prayer that marks Jews out as world-changers, the prayer that says there is only one God, not a pantheon. It was a way of acknowledging that part of me which I cannot shed. I hadn't been inside a synagogue since 1980, but it was Friday night, Shabbat, and as I was in the German capital, it seemed right to go to services at the Neue Synagogue, new synagogue, on Oranienburger Straße. Once the grandest Jewish house of worship in Europe, the place, built in the late 19th century, used to hold 3,200 people, it took a direct hit in the battle for Berlin, and the grand interior disappeared into dust. The bullet-scarred facade, a Moorish fantasy of arches and domes, languished during communist times. The exterior was renovated after German unification, and the congregation meets in a small, plain room built inside the grand dome that crowns the building. The space is adequate for the number of worshippers. I doubt there were more than fifty, including a small choir of half a dozen schoolchildren. I was late, and the service was underway. The old familiar prayer welcoming the Sabbath bride, Lecha Dodi, was being sung. I knew the melody, vaguely remembered the words, struggled to follow. As I said, I resist prayer, but the repetition and rhythmic chanting peeled away my defenses. I wept. I tried hard to stop, but I couldn't. I felt the weight of dead generations pressed down on me like a mountain. My own generations and others, my ghosts, my memory, my grandmother lighting Sabbath candles, her hands over her eyes, then over the flame, trying to pull the light into her heart, Passovers at her table when I was a boy, my grandfather and uncles no more religious than I am, but still Jewish. Since the ghettos were opened, to be born a Jew is to be born into a perpetual question of identity. Once you take religious practice out of the equation, are you still a Jew? Once you leave the ghetto, can you ever regard yourself as wholly equal in a Christian society if you're not one yourself? Or does being a Jew mean you belong to a race, an ethnicity, a separate nation? It's a question that was first asked here in Berlin at the very beginning of the Emancipation Era. And this is the ghost story I'm going to tell you. In 1670, the tiny protected Jewish community of Vienna was expelled. It used to happen from time to time, but one door closes, another opens. Frederick I of Prussia was interested in building his kingdom into a European power, and to do that he needed capital. So he invited the 300 wealthiest Viennese Jewish families and their retainers and necessary adjuncts to Berlin. They set up a community, went to work raising funds so Prussia could grow. 
The deal was the community would regulate itself, and it did. All Jewish visitors to the city had to pass the community's test before they were allowed in. It was a way to keep the peddlers and Jewish beggars and other riffraff out. One day in autumn 1743, a crippled, impoverished adolescent turned up at the Rosenthaler Gate, the one entry point for Jews into the city. He was taken for interrogation by the community's beadle into a little hut by the gate. The boy had the right name to drop. He was looking for his former teacher, Rabbi David Frankel, now Berlin's chief rabbi. He was allowed in. The gatekeeper's logbook for the day notes that at the Rosenthaler Gate, six oxen, seven pigs, and one Jew entered the city. The boy was Moses Mendelssohn. By his mid-thirties, he had transformed himself into one of the leading philosophers of the German Enlightenment, a friend and colleague of Immanuel Kant, a writer of exceptional German prose, considering it was his third language. Young German philosophers on the make knew he was the man to see when they first arrived in Berlin. In 1769, one of them, a theologian named Lavater, issued a public challenge to Mendelssohn to take the obvious next step and convert to Christianity. Mendelssohn, a practicing Orthodox Jew, answered publicly. He would not convert. The Lavater challenge shattered something inside Mendelssohn. He thought he had made a secure place for himself as a Jew integrated into Prussian society. He knew he could not be a university professor because he was Jewish. He'd made his peace with that. He earned his living running a silk manufacturing business and had long accepted he would have to do philosophy on the side. But now that balance was shattered. When he resumed his career as an intellectual, it was to found a social movement called Haskalah. He would help integrate his people into the mainstream of German life. He translated the Torah into German to help them learn the language properly. And so the identity crisis began. Mendelssohn had a lovely dream, but that was all it was. Hold fast to the religion of your fathers, he enjoined the community. But after his death, five of his children converted to Christianity. They did it for love, and they did it to make business alliances. His eldest daughter fell madly in love with the poet Friedrich von Schlegel, divorced her Jewish husband, and moved in with him. The couple received guests, and so was born the Jewish Salon. By the end of the 18th century, there were nine regular get-togethers in Berlin hosted by Jewish women, most of whom had converted. One hostess who didn't was Rachel Levin, Hers was the most intellectually rarefied of the salons. Here the leading Christian and Jewish intellectuals mixed amiably and discussed Goethe, what it meant to be a good German in a time when there was no Germany, how to build a modern society without the chaos and violence of the French Revolution. Rachel was not beautiful. She seems to have been average in every way, medium height, medium weight, pleasing enough to look at, but not ravishing. Yet she was a charismatic presence. She possessed the gift of words, but was born a little too soon to become a full-time author, a career not open at the time to a Berlin Jewess. So Rachel poured her intelligence, sensibility, and extraordinary talent with words into conversation and letter-writing, and her subject over and over again was her identity crisis. Here she was, entertaining the most important thinkers in Berlin, but somehow she was always aware that she was different, and they regarded her as not being their equal. Just as I was born, she wrote to David Veit, a member of the same close-knit wealthy Jewish society in which she had grown up. 
some otherworldly being, plunged a dagger into my heart with these words on it. Yes, have sensibility, see the world as few see it, be great and noble, nor will I take from you the faculty of eternal thinking, but I add one more thing. Be a Jewess, and now my life is a slow bleeding to death. Her friend Veit wrote back, It is doubtful anyone has ever written more pitifully and truthfully about Jews than you. Rachel was grateful for her friend's empathy and wrote to him, Only the galley slaves recognize each other. She constantly wondered who she was, what this in-between identity she found herself living meant. In a segregated society, forced to live inside a ghetto, this would not have been a question, but now it assailed her. She was a member of the first generation who faced this dilemma and was one of the first to try and put it into words. Philip Roth and Howard Jacobson, among others, are still trying. For years she remained in the no-man's land familiar to all members of minorities who were trying to integrate and assimilate, neither of your own culture nor accepted in the majority culture, always trying to get people to accept you as an individual human being, not as some preconceived idea of what a Jew or an African-American or a Muslim is. She wrote to a friend, Rebecca Friedlander, how hard it is always to have to legitimize yourself. That's why it is hateful to be a Jewess. Eventually, she found an answer to her dilemma through the love of a younger man and conversion to Christianity. Rachel was well into her thirties when she met Karl August Varnhagen von Ense. After a six-year courtship, she agreed to marry him. Rachel was forty-three, he was twenty-nine. A few days before the ceremony, she converted and wrote of the pastor who christened her, he received me as if Spinoza himself wanted to be baptized, so crushed was he with honor. The salon continued, and Rachel became the guiding light for the next generation of Jews facing the identity question. The poet Heinrich Heine, half her age, was a regular during the two years he was a law student in Berlin. She recognized in him a fellow galley slave. They teased each other in Yiddish accents, laughed about their visits to country cousins living in the shtetls of Poland, shook their heads in disbelief that somehow they, sophisticated and cosmopolitan, were closely related to these primitive people living amid farm animals and the smell of garlicky chicken soup always on the stove. Heine's identity crisis was profound. He saw himself as a German, but there was not yet a Germany. Yet he was rejected by his fellow nationalists because he was a Jew. He taught Hebrew school, although he barely spoke the language and was not at all religious. Finally, he wanted to be regarded as a writer in and of himself, not a Jewish writer or a German writer, but just an individual sensibility, expressing himself in words. He never resolved his identity crisis but the frustration of it did help him write works of genius. In the end, he too faced the conversion dilemma. Heine's verse made him famous quickly, but it did not make him rich. When he finally finished his law degree, he thought he might get a university post and support himself by teaching, but without conversion, that was out of the question. He agonized. Rachel helped guide him to the inevitable decision. He was baptized, even though he knew it would do no good. And it didn't. There was no university job. He was not allowed to be a German until he moved to Paris and lived among the French. You can walk the path of this story from Rachel's flat to the site of the Rosenthaler Gate in little over an hour. And I did. Rachel is, of course, a ghost to the city's residence. There's no plaque to mark the place where she held court. 
as near as I could figure, she lived above what is today the Hermes shop. Across the Friedrichstrasse, a two-story high image of Kate Moss, touting Versace, flutters on the side of the Berlin branch of Galerie Lafayette. I walked briskly towards the Rosenthaler Gate, through the cobbled plaza between the State Opera House and the entry to Humboldt University, across Unter den Linden. Here was where the Nazis burned books written by Jews. Heine, when he was a regular at Rachel's, had written, Where men burn books, they will burn people also in the end. Prophecy is always a poet's greatest gift, and Heine had it in abundance. I carried on. The Rosenthaler Gate, of course, is long gone. It's now called Rosenthaler Place. The site of the hut where the Jewish beadle asked Moses Mendelssohn why he wanted to visit Berlin became, in the 19th century, when that sort of question was no longer necessary, a hostel for single Jewish men, and then it became a clothing store owned by the Fabish family. They, too, would be completely unknown. But today on the site is the Circus Hotel, and there's a little plaque put up by the team who run the place, noting the fate of the Fabish family and honoring their memory. Midway on my walk, I found myself standing on a tiny pedestrian bridge over Berlin's river, the Spree. I could see the freshly gilded dome of the new synagogue floating above the rooftops. On the other side of the bridge is the Museum Island, it was drizzling and cold, but on this day thousands of people were queuing to walk into the just-restored Neues Museum, crushed by a British bomb towards the end of the war. They have their ghosts, I thought. I have mine. They have their identity questions. I have mine. I'm not sure I would attend services again at the new synagogue. It seems disrespectful, but it was important to go once. It was a small act of defiance a way of saying, on behalf of my ghosts, we're still here. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.